I'm Ken Jones. I'm one of the four pastor elders here at Missio Day, and I'm also a member of the preaching team. And uh, I returned on Thursday from a week of scuba diving <laughs> on an island called Bonaire, which is uh, next door to Curacao and Aruba. You've heard of those? It's off the coast of Venezuela, which is on the north coast of South America. Two things mark these trips when I get to do them. <clears throat> uh, the first is, it's a privilege to go. The guys that I go with, I've known almost 50 years. They are guys that I've lived with a lot in the past. They're very close friends with uh, Linda as well, um, brothers in Christ. And go, I would go anywhere with these guys. If we just went and spent a week in a Motel 6 in Iowa, I would do it just because the fellowship with them, the singing, the conversation, the prayer uh, is wonderful. The second, of course, is the diving, <clears throat> which um, I've only been doing it for about five years. And um, when, when, you go, when we go on one of these trips without our wives, we dive two or three times a day for six days in a row. So it's like in the water a lot. Uh, in six years, I've managed to do about 65 dives uh, using following that model. And uh, every time I descend into the water, I am blown away by the wonder, the intricacy, the the color, the variety, the you know, difference between all these different fish and all these different plant lives. The coral reef down there is astounding. And, uh, and I'm also just, I, I'm, I'm aware every single time that it's a huge privilege to see it because there's this, there's this more than half of the earth <laughs> covered by ocean that most people never get to go see in person. And uh, fortunately, we can see it <clears throat> all kinds of things uh, on videos and stuff, which is, is cool. But it's, it, it's probably like, um, I don't know if you, you noticed that uh, William Shatner went into space this past week on one of these new uh, private rockets, and I thought, that, that, that fits, you know, and, and not everybody, very few people can afford to, to do that, but it's still, you get to go see something that hardly anybody gets to see. It's an amazing privilege. And um, <clears throat> so... I'm mostly telling you all that because I, I just want to give God the glory for this amazing creation that I notice more when I'm there than I do sometimes when I'm just walking around in the one that I see every single day. It's just, it's, it's spectacular. Um, I had hoped to have a nifty illustration from my diving trip that would fit into my sermon, but I just wasn't clever enough to figure that out. So, but I wanted to share it anyway because I, I just, uh, you know, it was, it, just to give glory to the Lord for his creation. But this morning we're going to uh, begin a six-week series in um, Paul's letter to the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi. Actually, there's a slide. Thanks. That The bottom part there, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi is literally how it begins. It doesn't say, dear church in Philippi or whatever. It's, 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 to the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. And we're going to spend six weeks looking at that. And we've titled the series, as you can see, Spend Your Life. Finding our life in Christ as we spend our life for him. Now, there are all kinds of, there are other, I won't say all kinds, but there are other themes in the book of Philippians that can be drawn out and have been. Uh, it's often called the epistle of joy. The word joy or some variation on that shows up 16 times in the epistle. Um, it can also be read as simply a spontaneous love letter from Paul to a band of believers to whom he is so knit. It's one of the most unorganized letters 
not that Paul is a master of organization anyway in, in his letters, but this one is just, it's just kind of an outpouring of love and gratitude uh, to this, this group. Uh, he, he will say at one point, no church, no other church shared with me in giving and receiving but you. So he has this connection. And I imagine those themes will get touched on in the next six weeks from time to time. But we're going to spend our time exploring this theme of finding our life in Christ as we spend our life for him. Now, just a little bit about Philippi. It's, it's located, you might remember from our, our talks through the book of Acts, it's located in the Roman province of Macedonia, which we call northeastern Greece today. It's as you're leaving Greece and heading up across there over towards Turkey. And um, it wasn't the capital city of Macedonia, but Luke calls it in, in Acts 16, the leading city in Macedonia. It's sort of like comparing Portland to Augusta. Augusta's our capital, but Portland's where there's a whole lot more action in every way. Um, the church in Philippi, as we heard from our walk through the book of Acts over the last year, was planted there by Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke and probably some others who were traveling with them. Um, That was the story where Paul and Silas ended up in a prison and an earthquake came and opened all the doors and they didn't leave. And the jailer was going to take his own life until they said, no, 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 we're all here. And and that led to the, the jailer and his whole family coming to Christ and the growth of the church there. He most likely wrote this letter from Rome. There are different theories on that. And most likely during his first incarceration in Rome when he was under house arrest, living in his own rented apartment. And it was probably written about 10 years after the church in Philippi was planted. Thematically, the letter builds on some passages from the Gospels and elsewhere in Paul. I'm just going to read a couple. This is... Luke 9 and verse 23 to 26, Jesus said to everyone, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. We just sang about that. Forever would save his life, will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself or his soul? Matthew 6 says this, Jesus said, Therefore I tell you, don't be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. The Gentiles seek after all these things. Your heavenly Father knows you need them all. Spend your time seeking primarily the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Don't be anxious about tomorrow. Tomorrow will be anxious for itself. And then in Colossians, which is generally believed to be written during the same general time period of the letter to Philippi, Paul wrote, If you've been seated with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So the the letter to the saints in in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi can be read as an extended treatise. It's not really a treatise, but it it explores these themes and how they are worked out in the life of Paul and in the lives of others. Setting aside self-interest, 
losing our lives to find them, trusting God for our earthly needs and seeking the kingdom, setting our minds on things above and not earthly things. Well, here's a quick overview. Again, this is week one. Uh, We'll have six sermons on this. I'm going to give you a quick overview of the whole letter, how this kind of works out. Uh, Our passages this week, rather than, mostly it'll be linear, but this week we're going to be in in chapter one and chapter four, which is the last chapter. Um, They're all about the Philippians' participation in the gospel, primarily financially. It also makes this passage we'll read makes it clear that Paul is joyfully content in the provision of Christ no matter what his personal circumstances are, whether he's in prison, whether he's free, whether he's amply supplied with early things or whether he's in need. It doesn't matter. The passage for week two comes from the middle of chapter one where Paul makes it clear that he is thankful to God for the help that he has received from the saints in Philippi, and he, again, is not concerned with his earthly well-being. In week three, we'll finish out chapter one and get halfway to chapter two, and we will learn that it's been granted to us to believe, but also to suffer. It has been granted to us to believe and to suffer for Christ and to do that together as we conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. In week four, the end of chapter two reminds us that Paul rarely worked alone. He talks about two of his co-workers, Timothy and Epaphroditus. He exhorts his readers to hold men like Epaphroditus in high regard because Epaphroditus risked his life, came very close to death for the sake, for the work of Christ by completing the service, which was delivering this money, this gift from Philippi uh, of the Philippians to Paul. And in week five, the beginning of chapter three, rejoice, remember who you are in Christ. We are the true circumcision. Consider everything lost for the sake of gaining Christ. Forget what lies behind. Reach forward to the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Live by what we've attained. And in week six, he tells his brothers and sisters in Christ to follow his example and the example of the pattern that they see in others like Paul. Our citizenship is in heaven. Stand firm then in the Lord. Rejoice, be gentle, don't be anxious. If you have needs, ask God for them, but be at peace that he will supply what you need according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Dwell on the good, practice the good, and Jehovah's Shalom, the God of peace, will be with you. All of this points to a life at rest and full of joy in Christ, even while we live, and this is in the words of the the epistle, even while we live in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom we appear as lights in the world. It points to a life of contentment in Christ, regardless of our circumstances. It points to losing our life in this world that we may gain our life in Christ. And it points to a willingness to participate in the gospel with all of our resources and especially our money because they don't matter up against the surpassing value of knowing Christ and being in his family. Well, today's passages are in Philippians 1, 
1 through 11 and 4, 10 through 19. If you want to read, we're going to read right now Philippians 1, the first 11 verses. I'll give you a second to pull that out. Read together. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always every, in every prayer of mine for you, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let's walk through this. Actually, I just want to say, Lord, thank you for these words. Thank you for this letter. Thank you for your servant, Paul. Thank you for your servant, Timothy, who wrote it with him. Speak to us, Lord Jesus, by your spirit from this, from this letter over these coming weeks and this morning. Speak to us the things that you would have us here at this point of time in this place. Amen. Well, Paul refers to Timothy and himself as servants of Christ Jesus. The word for servant, you've probably heard this, many of you have heard this before. In Greek, it's doulos. And that word is translated in the New American Standard Bible as a bondservant. And in the uh, New English translation, it's translated slave. Um, the introduction, that particular introduction, also appears in Paul's letter to Titus and his letter to the church in Rome. And James, Jude, and Peter also use that same introduction to introduce themselves in their various letters. Paul thus identifies himself as being owned by his master, the Lord Jesus. He belongs to him. These terms can make us really uncomfortable in 21st century America and for very good reasons, but they accurately describe the relationship of Paul to his master and savior. And they actually accurately describe the relationship of a disciple of Jesus to his master or her master and savior. In verse two, Paul is writing he says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus. This is a term, when Linda and I were younger, <clears throat> we lived in, um, we lived in a, a Christian community for a, a very long time. We lived together, we ate together. We actually wrote, signed our checks and dropped them into a box. That's another story. For many, many years and uh, lived in common. It was phenomenal. It was, it was exciting. We called each other saints all the time, which you try that now and it sounds, it sounds kind of, I don't know, curious, anachronistic. But we, we did it with, with purpose. Um, 
the word saints related to the word sanctify, sanctification, or to be made holy. In fact, some of your translations will say in this passage, writing to all the holy ones or the holy people. I think the NIV says the holy people in Christ Jesus. In it all, all those words have to do with being set apart from the world to God in Christ. Set apart. And, so, and that's helpful to me. That's the word I like to use is set apart or the words because saints, holy, Holy is, I think, a, a highly misunderstood word half the time we use it. They, it means to be set apart to a particular purpose. This is the same word that's used for Israel being set apart by God from the world and for the temple and the tabernacle and all the articles of worship. They were set apart from ordinary use to a, a, a use, a set-apart use, a holy use for God. And that's, that's what he says here. I'm writing to all those people set apart in Christ Jesus at Philippi. He then goes on to say in verse 3, I thank my God. And he goes on to say what he thanks. It's interesting that Paul doesn't directly thank the people in Philippi. He doesn't thank the church. He doesn't directly thank the saints. He thanks God for them and what they have done. Now, I, the first thing that comes to my mind is like, hmm, well, I don't know about that. If I do something nice for somebody and they say, well, thank God, and then they just go on their merry way, say, well, wait a minute, what about me? Um, but it, um, it just speaks to Paul's focus on the source of everything. He loves these people. In fact, let's go on. In verses 3 through 6, he tells them that he prays with joy and thanksgiving every single time he remembers them because of their participation in the gospel. Now, that's a direct reference to their gift of money to him for his care. That participation in the gospel in this context is a direct reference to them having sent this monetary gift to him. He thanks God because they are so giving So giving of themselves to the life and to the gospel and to Paul's care. And he's confident in God that God will complete what he began in them until the Lord Jesus returns. So he sees the activity of God in their lives. He sees the outworking of it, which has resulted in this gift to him. And he thanks God. In verses 7 and 8, he says, I hold you in my heart. We, we'd probably say something like, I love you dearly. He says, I yearn, or in the NASB, in the New American, it says, I long for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. I might say, I, I, I miss you so much. So he says, I hold you in your heart, my heart. I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. He's overflowing with emotion for these dear friends. But it's interesting that, again, he doesn't directly root his feelings for them in himself. He roots them in the affection of Christ. It reminds us, again, I think that and the whole thing about thanking God for them, it it reminds us how completely Paul associates anything worthwhile in himself with the indwelling life of Christ by which he now lives. He doesn't have any confidence in the flesh. This will get explored later in chapter 3. He doesn't have confidence in what love he can produce. For I don't know if any of you have read, anyone read The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis? 
So a handful of people. And it's, it's a wonderful book. I have read that book a, a number of times. I, I commend it to you. There's a chapter in there about a mother who loves her son. And the whole point of the chapter is unpacking the utter inadequacy of a mother's love relative to the love of God for people. And, and that's what it reminds me of here. He, Paul is clear. The love that he feels for them that is lasting and eternal comes from the Lord himself. Well, in 9 through 11, he prays with joy that their love would abound even more in knowledge and discernment of all that's good, being filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, that, that's a big mouthful. You could take each of those. There's like about six sections of that verse, you know, those verses. It refers directly back to this verse 5 idea when Paul thanked God for their monetary participation in the gospel. That their love, that their self-sacrificial love would abound more and more in real knowledge and discernment of all that's best. Knowledge and discernment to Paul is a product of living in the Spirit and by the Spirit. The New American actually translates this as real knowledge, trying to get across the idea that this isn't like he's praying that they'll just know a whole lot of stuff. He's praying that they will be immersed in the one who is knowledge, the one who's truth. Uh, in this context, this real that they use in the New American, it, it, it's something substantive. It's solid. It's eternal. It's experiential. It's objective. It's all those things. And it's through Jesus Christ, his death for us and his life in us, that the fruit of righteousness with which we will be filled and are filled will result in an outpouring of what we have for the benefit of others. Let's jump ahead to chapter 4. We're in verses 10 through 19, if you want to read along. This expounds further on this participation in the gospel that was in verse 5 of chapter 1. It returns to the theme, and this is toward the end of the letter. It's almost the end. It returns to the theme of Paul's joy in the Lord at their generous participation and their concern for him. So let's, let's read that, starting in verse 10. By the way, I'm in the ESV, if you were trying to figure out which version I was reading. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly now at, that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You indeed were concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share with me in my trouble. And you Philippians yourself know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. 
And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. In verses 11 through 13, Paul makes it clear that he doesn't speak from a lack or from a need. He's content in all circumstances. This idea will get developed further, I think, next week. It also makes it clear that he does not have to be poor in order to be content. That isn't the point of this passage. He doesn't elevate poverty over wealth. He says, I am content with wealth. I am content with little. I'm content when I abound and when I lack. I'm a t- he's content in prison or out of prison. So doesn't, he doesn't say, this is the best thing for me to be in prison. Now, he will tell us that it worked out well that he was. But the point is, the circumstances are not relevant. He has a contentment that is not based on his circumstances. How can that be? And how might that help us? Paul was content in all circumstances because he himself abounded in the real knowledge and the real discernment of Jesus, the substance, he says in Colossians, the substance of what had been a shadow. Because Paul found his life in Christ, he was able to freely spend his life for Christ with joy. It was not a burden. It was a joy. It was a... It just poured out of him. The source of his contentment in all circumstances was not, you know, some sense of uh, he's going to suck it up. He's going to pull himself up by his bootstraps. He's going to practice the power of positive thinking. This is all right. I can make it. This is, is going to be okay. That, isn't, that is not what's happening. What, what happens is he finds strength. He says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. He finds strength in every circumstance in Christ who strengthened him. His contentment was the fruit of a life abiding in Christ of active communion with Christ in the Spirit. Nevertheless, he tells the, the saints in Philippi that they were kind. In the, in the New American, it says that they did well to share his trouble or his affliction. In verse 15, we got another look at how closely knit Paul felt to this body of believers. No church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. What they sent he identifies as an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. This is a, a reference to um, the Old Testament Levitical sacrifices, which would raise up these fragrant aromas to God. And he identifies their gift with that. Their sharing with Paul also, he says, was thus profitable to them. I'll read that verse 17. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Those are um, interesting words. They might strike some of us as odd. The idea of reward for our actions or something being, I don't know, credited to our account is actually the way it is in uh, in another translation. It's a scriptural theme that can be overlooked easily by a lot of us um, because we properly focus on the complete and uniquely effective work of Christ on the cross. 
we can be confused by the idea of reward. I will confess, I have been in my life, you know, trying to sort out, you know, how does this work? I know that I have nothing except by the virtue of what Christ did on the cross and that I have my righteousness is his because of the cross. That, um, and yet this idea of reward uh, shows up routinely. Uh, that, to be honest, is a sermon for another day. I just didn't want to blow by that verse without at least acknowledging that it's there. Paul confidently asserts to the saints and all of us that his God will supply their every need according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. This idea closes out the letter in chapter 4, but it really undergirds the whole. The provision of Jesus is always real and it's always now. It's not a promise of material wealth or, frankly, even a promise that no Christian will ever suffer from lack or will ever even die, you know, won't, won't ever die from not having food or other necessities. That, sadly, has happened many times to many believers in the last 2,000 years. But it's a promise of God's ultimate faithfulness, his care, his provision, that its provision has its, its root in the riches of glory in Jesus Christ. Paul, as we will see later on in the letter, talks about life and death. They're both equally to go be with Christ or to be here. I'm torn. They're both good. He, he's not focused on what happens to this. <laughs> he really isn't. And this statement in verse 19, it, it's, it's kind of an echo of what he wrote in Ephesians 1.3, that the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. What else can we possibly need? And in 1 Corinthians, he, he, he goes through this whole deal where people are arguing about they're, they're, they like Paul, they like Apollos, they like Peter, and he says, what, what are you talking about? Everything is yours whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death in the present or the future, all things are yours. You are Christ's and Christ's is God. So this, what, what might we take away from this? Opening talk from this letter. I have two thoughts. The first is real contentment and its source. As I mentioned earlier, the source of Paul's contentment was not the power of positive thinking. It wasn't, you know, putting the best face on a, on a not-so-great situation. It was the fruit of his abiding in Christ, of his daily communion with God, the Father, in spirit. There really isn't any substitute for this. I mean, if we want to be those who set our minds on things above, if we want to be those who primarily seek the kingdom of God, if we want to be those who take up our cross and are willing to lose our life to save it, there's no way to accomplish that except in relationship to Christ. It is actually his life in us and us learning to abide in him and know him that frees us up to do those things. I don't have the human power to lose my life to save it. That isn't the point. The point isn't that if if I can do this... You know, I can somehow set aside my selfishness and pursue the kingdom. Uh, you might be a better person than I am, but my selfishness is, is incredibly powerful. I mean, it's my self-centeredness. 
you know, my focus on making sure everything's okay. It is in relationship to God in Christ, in the Spirit, by the Spirit, this relationship that's marked by daily communion and walking with him that takes place in him, that all of that is, is our inheritance, frankly. The second relates to stewardship and generosity, which also find their best source in our abiding in Christ. Now, there are all kinds of people who are very generous. There are lots of philanthropists who are not Christians. People can give away their money. But to do so with joy and a sense of abandonment, do so with the sense that I don't need this. What I, I, I'm free enough from the thing I'm giving away that I, I, it doesn't actually have a hold on my heart. If I want the joy in giving, it will come out of an overwhelming sense that I don't really need what I'm giving away, that I'm blessed in the giving. And those perspectives, speaking personally, are the fruit of abiding in Christ. There's a totally different thing going on in my brain when I'm at peace and at rest in Christ and I'm giving something away or I'm over here with my ledger how much of this can I afford, you know, or how much, you know, it's like, I, and I'm overly concerned about how this is going to affect me. So this is what I would encourage us with this morning to think about as we leave this morning. How well do I make time to simply sit with the Lord in his presence each day? How well do I do that? Singing to him. Do you sit and sing? I'd, I'd like to do that, but I, this is a question I'm asking myself. How well do I make time to sit with him, sing to him, talk to him, listen to him, loving him, receiving his love, just saying, I love you, Lord, and to just sit there and just let the Lord love me back. Are there things I can change in my schedule to make that more my pattern? So that's the first point. And the second, how do I steward what I have? How do I prioritize the use of my money? When I think about giving is participating in the gospel, even in my mind. You know, is that, is that what I'm thinking about? Is it on my heart that what I have is a resource to participating in the gospel, in the furthering of the gospel, in the proclamation, in the in the um, proclamation of the gospel of the kingdom and the gospel of Christ Jesus. So those are my two things. How well do I make time to simply sit with the Lord in His presence each day, and how do I steward what I have? And, you know, what, what is it that motivates me one direction or the other? As we come to the table, um, I first will ask someone to help distribute the elements. If you can do that. Actually, Joel, if you'll just hang right there. And I'm just going to pray for a minute, and then we'll, we'll do that. Lord, as we come to this table, it reminds us of your cross. It reminds us of what you paid on the cross for us. 
We worship you, Lord Jesus. We worship you, the Lamb of God, once slain for us. We worship you, the risen Lamb, now seated on a heavenly throne. You're the A. You're the Z. You're the beginning. You're the end. You died that we might have life to the full. And we cry out with the angels, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and power and honor and glory and blessing. And Lord Jesus, as we come to this table, we ask you to help us to spend our energies seeking you and your kingdom. And we ask you to teach us to find our contentment in you and you alone that we might freely share all of our resources, partnering with you and each other in the gospel. Amen. The cups will now be handed around. If you're new with us, there's a a thin film to be peeled away from the top to expose the little wafer. Thank you. And then the top may be removed from the juice cup. Let's all hang on to the elements as we receive them, and we'll take them together as I read through a passage in 1 Corinthians 11. I will wait a moment while everyone gets a cup. I'm reading from 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat the bread together. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's drink the cup together. My brothers and sisters, saints in Christ Jesus in Portland, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. All praise to the Lord Jesus. Amen.